I kind of want to just take a minute and like take you in because it's like you're real and you're here and uh, I've missed gathering with you all as a church. Uh, this morning was a morning I needed to sing. I needed worship. Sometimes you just kind of overflow in worship. Sometimes you just need to sing. And this was a morning where I needed to sing and to get to sing with you was a huge gift. Um, I'm talking about something that's very personal and sensitive this morning, and so I just want to take a moment to pray that God would be the one that you interact with today, that God would be the one that you hear. Um, so if you join me, what I'm going to ask you to do is open your hands, that you might be receptive to God from a physical level and a spiritual level. So uh, let's pray together. God, we've ultimately come for you we, we have this cry of our hearts and of our soul that can only be filled by you. We have questions that can only be answered by you. Uh, we have grief that can only be comforted by you. We have pain that can only be healed by you. We have joy that can only be its fullest expression when it's in you. And so we open our hands to you. Uh, for you to speak, for you to be with us, for you to meet with us. So we ask you to do it in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, today, I want to talk about how our faith enters into the midst of challenges to bring about some triumphs for our lives, but also about how faith comes in the midst of tragedies, when the tragedies don't just automatically turn to triumph. And as I was thinking about that, I was actually thinking about weddings. Um, one, of the most, uh, one of the greatest privileges I have as a pastor is to officiate weddings. Do you remember weddings where we used to like gather and see a couple that we love, be able to express their love for each other and then dance like together, not separate, um, not in little pods and circles, uh, but together. We'll do that again one day, I hear. But in the wedding, the most beautiful part is not when, you know, we get to the reception and celebrate. It's not even the moment where the bride comes down the aisle with that first look and we, and it's beautiful, but the most beautiful part is when the couple turns to each other and shares their vows. And it's in that moment where they're looking at each other that all of us kind of are amazed at this communication and this commitment that they're able to look at each other and some write their own vows, but most tend to follow along this traditional vow, that I take you to be my spouse, that from this day forward, for better or worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part, this is my solemn vow. And what's beautiful about this is this expression that no matter what life throws at us, <laughs> We're going to do it together. What we've experienced so far and the love that I feel for you, I'm making into a commitment that nothing that life can come and bring, no challenges are too much to break these vows. And I've been thinking about that because God gives us this thing called faith that is more powerful than the vows that we get to see on a wedding day. That it communicates to us that there is power in faith to bring about triumphs when the challenges come. But also faith does something unique in the midst of tragedies. That when the triumph doesn't happen, faith is still as powerful. 
And it's in this tension that we really begin to meet God for all that he is. Not just the one that brings about victory, but the one that's with us in defeat. Not just the one that brings about the healing every single time, but the one that holds us when the healing doesn't come immediately. And I really believe it's in both triumph and tragedy that we get to experience the fullness of God. And in doing so, we find a God who rejoices with us when we rejoice, who is as joyful over us when we are joyful in this life, but also a God who is with us and grieving with us and mourning with us when we face these tragedies. And more than that, I think God wants us to look exactly like him as his people. And I think what God is trying to do in shaping us as the people of God is to look like him, to be a people that when trials come, to run towards them, to help people get out of that, to help people when they're challenged, when they're struggling, when it's difficult. But also to be a people that simply just weep with those who weep. To be there in the grief. And the church has this opportunity in this moment, in the midst of so much grief, in the midst of such a long extended tragedy, to step up and to be a different type of people. But to do so, we need to see God for who he fully is in triumph and in tragedy. And I really believe there's two groups that God wants to speak to. There's the group that is facing the trial right now and going, I want triumph right here, right now. And I think each of us could say, in this part of my life, that's what I'm wanting God to come through right now. We have that. There's a group of us that are feeling that. And we want to turn to faith and believe that God can bring it about. And there's also a group of us that are in the midst of tragedy. And we're hitting a crossroads. We're hitting a point where we could either turn towards God and grieve with him and wrestle with him about that, or we could go away from God. And we could say, how could a God do this? And in Hebrews chapter 11, up to this point, we've been looking week after week about a God who triumphs about a God who by faith leads these people to experience signs and wonders and miracles. But Hebrews 11 ends in such an honest way of saying there's a number of triumphs that we haven't been able to cover, but there's also the reality of tragedy, that the scriptures speak to life in a serious and a direct manner, that life is filled with this mixed bag of good and bad, and God is in the midst of both. And so I want to walk through these three sections at the end of Hebrews 11 to look at these triumphs and these tragedies, but what it means for us together. And so Hebrews chapter 11 ends in this way, starting in verse 32. It says, How much more do I need to say? It would take too long to recount the stories of the faith of Gideon and Barak and Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and all the prophets. By faith, these people overthrew kingdoms. They ruled with justice They received what God had promised them. They shut the mouths of lions, quenched the flames of fire, and escaped death by the edge of the sword. Their weakness was turned to strength. They became strong in battle and put whole armies to flight. Women received their loved ones back from death. But others were tortured, refusing to turn from God in order to be set free. They placed their hope in a better life after the resurrection. Some were jeered at and their backs cut open with whips. Others were chained in prison. Some died by stoning. Some were sawed in half and others were killed with the sword. Some went about wearing skins of sheep and goats, destitute and oppressed and mistreated. 
They were too good for this world, wandering over deserts and mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. All these people earned a good reputation because of their faith. Yet none of them received all that God had promised. For God had something better in mind for us so that they would not reach perfection without us. Let's start with the triumphs because we all need a little bit of good news in the midst of this, just like we needed the spring day to come on the first day of spring yesterday. Like we need some good news. Let's start with the triumphs. And what I love about kind of how he breaks the triumph passage down is he talks about triumphs that are both significant, but also very simple. He goes through and he talks about overthrowing kingdoms, ruling with justice, resurrection, shutting the mouths of lions so they don't devour you, fire that doesn't burn you up, these significant things. But others just very simple. He just says they just received what was promised them. Their weakness was turned to strength. And I like that God says both because we need his triumphs in the simple tasks of life and the significant. And in doing so, my question for you is, where do you want to see God triumph right now? Does it seem insignificant and too simple to even turn to him to see that triumph come about? Is it the simple things of parenting toddlers or teenagers that you just need him to do that? Or is it the more significant things of physical and mental health struggles where you're just like, I want to see his triumph here. It's important for you to answer that question of today, that struggle, that trial of today. The trials of tomorrow will come, but what is it today for you? You're saying, God, I want to know that you're real now in this moment. Regardless of how insignificant it may seem in your mind, nothing is too insignificant to God and nothing is too significant that God can't do it. That's the message of the triumphs of the scripture and the testimonies of these people. Whatever it is for you, there are two messages that God speaks to about this. The first is that faith precedes triumphs. Faith precedes triumphs. And what I mean by faith there is going back to the very definition. Faith is in a person, not in a preferred outcome. Faith is not some form of manifestation that you say, I want it to be like this, therefore it will. No, faith is in a person. And the scriptures say that person is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. That's who we are supposed to interact with. And every single one of these stories, what happens is God goes to meet them. They meet with God before they ever go to meet the trial. Before they ever go to see the triumph, God meets them. With David, he gets anointed and private with his family before he ever becomes that great king that defeats Goliath and establishes the kingdom of Israel. With Gideon, he's hiding in fear. And what happens? God shows up. And before he goes and overthrows oppression and injustice, he turns and trusts in God. Faith precedes triumph. And so when that trial comes and the crossroad hits, the challenge for you is to turn to God. And then you can turn to the triumph. Faith precedes triumph. But the second message is that it's just faith. Not more faith. 
The message of Hebrews 11 is not these phenomenal people that had more faith than you to overcome the triumph that they faced. He simply says, by faith. He doesn't talk about the measure of faith, the quality of faith. It's just by faith. Because we're trusting in the perfect Savior, not in our perfect track record, not in our ability to conjure up more faith so that we can face the challenge ahead. Even the simplest of faith, because each of these people just had an ounce. And the message of the scriptures from Jesus is if your faith is as small as a mustard seed, it can move mountains. That's all that God invites you to do is just to turn to him and say, even if it's a struggle, like we see in the scriptures, I believe, but help my unbelief. Because we come to God with these hopes and these doubts. And God is pleased that we came to him. He's not measuring what we came to him with. What trial do you want to see God triumph in today? Faith precedes triumph. And just a little bit is all you need. Those are the triumphs. But even though faith precedes triumph, what we discover, the longer we're in faith, and even as we look in the scripture, is that faith doesn't prevent tragedy. It is not a vaccine that makes you immune to the pains of life. And boy, do we wish it was. And if we're honest, I think we expect it to. If we're a follower of Jesus Christ, if we're the people of God, why doesn't God prevent me from ever experiencing pain in this life? Our functional faith declares that's our belief about how it should work if we trust in God. He should be our ticket to comfort and ease. And when he's not, we have a lot of questions for him. We have a lot of questions about him. And here, the scriptures are very honest that tragedies are sometimes the earthly outcome. In verses 36 through 38, it says that some were tortured even for their faith, yet they didn't give it up. Others were martyred and killed. Others were mocked and beaten. Others became outcasts because they chose to live exactly as God called them to, following his ethic, following his culture, following his ideas, not the cultural preferences and standards of the day. These tragedies are what we fear in life. Jasmine spoke about that with the fears. Janice even spoke about that. What are the things that we're all fearing? These are kind of a summary of it. Many of us have a fear of death. Many of us are afraid of that and we want to stave it off and kind of push it off as far as we possibly can. And when death comes around, we want to take every form of medication so we can just make it, this life last longer. The scriptures say that a fear of death is actually slavery that prevents you from enjoying life. Some of us are not accidentally afraid of death, we're actually afraid of losing our reputation or the death of our reputation if we follow Jesus or if we declare what Jesus to say to be something that we actually believe to be true. We'd actually prefer death than face people that disagree with us about our idea of what faith means. Which of these tragedies do you fear the most? Which of these would you love to avoid? Which of you, these do you believe, man, I wish faith would prevent that from happening in my life? 
But more than that, the question is, what happens when they happen in your life? Where is faith? Where is God when they happen? Because life is very real and raw and honest. And we've had a front row seat over this last year of the tragedies and the challenges and the trials, one after another. Every day and every week seems to bring one more reality of life in the evils and the wickedness that we face. Where is God in that? And when we actually ask that question, and when we wrestle to the ground the quest, that question, do we find a good God? Do we find faith to be valuable in the life? Faith to be valuable in tragedies? And as I look at these scriptures, as I look at these stories, I see God tell us three things in tragedies. First is that he is with us in the challenge we're facing. The second is that these challenges correct us. And the third is that he alone can comfort us. The first is that he's with us in the challenge. Well, first, let me say, I have it in that order for a reason. Because I don't want you to ever think that faith is an immediate just calm for the pain and the challenge. Faith doesn't immediately absolve you from feeling bad in the challenge. It, it has this work to do before it comforts you. And the first challenge is to believe that God is with us. Because we do, when we're faced with these things, have this question in our mind, where are you? How could you let this happen? You said that you would have good for me. Where is that good? You said I would not experience these pains. Where are you when I'm having this pain, when I face this loss? These are the questions that rise up within us. And in a week, we're going to go through Holy Week, and we're going to see that these questions actually came to Jesus' mind. That in the Garden of the Gethsemane, before he went to the cross, knowing the tragedy of the cross was coming, we see him wrestle with God and even try to negotiate. <laughs> try to negotiate even the way that we would want to negotiate with God. We'd be like, I'll take that challenge, not this one, right? Let me trade. And Jesus says, let this cup, let this tragedy pass from me. Let's try another way. Let's try another way. Wrestling to the point of shedding blood, grieving the fact that he's going to have to face this. And then on the cross, we hear him cry out, why have you forsaken me? Where are you, God? And in those cries, we hear our own. We hear a Savior cry the way that we do and say, where are you? Why are you doing this? Come and be with me. And it is in that wrestling, in that grieving, in that not giving up on God, but going to him and arguing with him and fighting with him that we finally get him fully. Because Jesus trusts in something better. He trusts in something better than this earthly results that we want. And that is something in connection with God himself. The greatest promise that Jesus gives to his disciples is that I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And the first thing we need to know in these trials is that God is actually with us. He has not abandoned us. He is doing something that we can't see. Jesus placed hope in the cross that there was a resurrection coming. He placed hope in the midst of these challenges that God's ideas, he was, his will was something that was worth it. And so that's what he found in finding himself with God. 
And in doing so, there is a correction that comes about in tragedy. See, and when I mean correction, I I always tend to think about correction as harsh, like God's going to be harsh with me. He's trying to correct me in painful ways. But when I say correction, I want you to think about it in clarifying ways. Sometimes correction is just clarifying what matters and what is true and what is good. And challenges come to kind of correct us in this way. Someone that's been helpful in thinking about this is a pastor that I admire named Dr. Timothy Keller. Dr. Keller has been a pastor in the city for decades, recently retired, and he's written amazing books on this. Right at the beginning of the pandemic, he had just finished and published a book titled On Death. And then a month later, he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and given a diagnosis that none of us would want to hear. And a couple weeks ago, he wrote in The Atlantic an article titled Growing My Faith in the Face of Death, where he was forced to begin to reconcile is all this advice, all the things I've taught for decades, can it be true for me? And he said his immediate answer was it was a struggle. It wasn't naturally true. The things that he knew in his head, he needed to feel in his heart, and it didn't automatically happen. But what he found in wrestling with God every day through the struggle of cancer in the face of death was a clarity about God and about this life that he says he wouldn't have had otherwise. No amount of study, no amount of teaching, no amount of ministering to others and being in community could clarify it the way that wrestling with God in crisis and tragedy forced him to do. And in the article, he says, the things I used to sing took on a new meaning. And he quotes the hymn writer John Newton in one of the songs where he depicts God as speaking to the human soul. And God saying, These inward trials I employ, that from pride and self I set you free, and break your schemes of earthly joy, that you would find your all in me. The tragedy and crisis begins to erase all the ways that we think we can find true joy, all the ways that we think we can find peace, even what we think this life is ultimately about. And he goes on to say, what, what I was challenged with is how much I want to make this world my personal heaven. That I want to make this world structured in a way that I feel secure and comfortable and at ease. A world that is broken and yet we're trying to make it perfect for ourselves. And he says, when I began to break free from this false lie that this world could ever be my heaven and place my hope in something grander, then I found all the joys in life to be better. See, here in this passage in in Hebrews 11, the two phrases that are the most important are, one, that they place their hope in a better life after the resurrection, and that they were too good for this world. Because that message is that you were made for something better than anything you could experience in this world. And sometimes it takes tragedies to clarify that. Keller goes on to quote St. Augustine saying, God, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. You're ultimately made for a better life of communion with God. 
And faith works in tragedies to bring a clarity to our eyes and correct us so that we would live primarily for his audience and his relationship and not for this world. Not trying to squeeze more pleasure out of tomorrow. Not trying to squeeze more money out of today. Thinking that that's going to satisfy our hearts perpetually restless until they find their rest in him. And then our faith comforts us. See, because we're turning to the one place where comfort exists. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul starts off and says, All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is our merciful Father and the source of all comfort. He comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort others. When they are troubled, we will be able to give them the same comfort God has given us. For the more we suffer for Christ, the more God will shower us with his comfort through Christ. Even when we are weighed down with troubles, it is for your comfort and salvation. For when we ourselves are comforted, we will certainly comfort you. Then you can patiently endure the same things that we suffer. How good of God that when we wrestle with him in our pain, he meets us there to give us clarity, but also to comfort. And he is the God of all comfort. He is the one who can comfort you in the mental illnesses of anxiety and depression. He is the one that can comfort you when the physical pain seems to not end. He is the one that can comfort you in the loss of a loved one. He's the one that can comfort you in every frustration and every trial and every tragedy. He's the God of all comfort. I need that God every morning. The author Jerry Bridges says, in our worst days, we are never beyond the reach of God's grace. And in our best days, we are never beyond the need of God's grace. Because we need this God of all comfort. And that's who we get in Jesus. See, the Hebrews 11 ends by pointing to a purpose beyond the pain And it has to do with how we engage together. Hebrews 11 ends by saying, all of these received a good reputation by faith. Whatever earthly outcome you're facing has nothing, no record for a heavenly reputation. By faith, you can have this phenomenal reputation with God, whether this life is good and you have everything you want, or whether this life is bad and horrible. God is saying, I am pleased with you as my child. He says, but none of them received everything that God had promised because God wanted them to receive perfection with us and us to receive it with them. That he wanted to join us with a history of faith and a family of faith. And he wanted to be a part of a present family of faith that experienced triumphs and tragedies together. That your win is my win and that's why I get to celebrate it. And your tragedy is my pain and that's why I grieve it with you that he is putting together a people that look like Jesus, who cry out with you, where are you, God? I don't want to see my friend in pain. Where are you, God? This injustice that I see in this world sucks and I want you to change it for my brothers and sisters. That's the people that we get to be. But the message of the scripture is that each of us individually have to run through these triumphs and tragedies so that when we gather in community, 
We can tell testimonies to encourage someone going through the same trial we did. When we gather in community, we can talk about how God comforted us when we lost our loved one. So that when that person is facing that loss, they know where to turn. And right now, our neighbors are coming out of a year of grief. But we're also facing this new normal that's ambiguous and confusing and no one really knows what to do. And everyone will be facing new fears. They will be facing the reality of lost friendships, lost loved ones, a year where there has not been that ability to gather and love one another. And God is calling us, a people that know the God of all comfort, that have seen him triumph in our trial, that have seen him comfort us in our tragedies, to be that people. We have a great opportunity ahead of us. But what we're trying to let them experience is what we're trying to experience, and that's Jesus. Hebrews 12 starts with, Therefore, because of everything we've just talked about, all the triumphs, all the tragedies by faith, therefore, what do we do? We fix our eyes on Jesus, the author, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him in the resurrection endured the cross so that you and I might know true life and life abundantly in him. It's all about Jesus. He is better. He is who we need. Let's pray. Jesus, you're the king of kings. You call us your own. You see us in the trial that we're facing today. And you promise and you have the power to triumph. God, I ask that you would do that in miraculous ways for the people in this room, for everyone that would hear this, that they might believe and turn to you. For those in the midst of tragedies and questioning where you are, for those that have been waiting so long for that triumph and wondering when will you come through, I ask that you be with them, that you give them clarity as you are with them and that you would comfort them. God, make us a people that look like you, that rejoice with those who rejoice, and that weep with those who weep. I ask this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen.